A zombie infestation, now 7 billion strong, is spreading throughout the planet. Once an imaginary threat, they have now become the dominant species on Earth. I have met the zombies, and they are us. That's a brief moment from a fun Halloween video produced by the impressive UK nonprofit Population Matters a few years ago to bring attention to human overpopulation. On this episode of the Overpopulation Podcast, we'll visit with the director of Population Matters, Robin Maynard. I'm Dave Gardner, Executive Director of World Population Balance and host of the Overpopulation Podcast. You can learn more about overpopulation and how we can solve it at worldpopulationbalance.org. Robin, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, no, thank you for asking. Let me ask you, does it make you feel good to know that organizations like Population Matters are a dime a dozen, every environmental group and dozens upon dozens of sustainable population organizations have our society laser focused on the problem of human overpopulation and what we can do to solve it? My God, if only that were true. I think <laughs> we're a small and... and uh threatened species of, of environmentalists and conservationists and, and people who actually care about people and the planet who do talk about population. I think you probably know only too well, Dave, that the word population has been something of a taboo subject and issue for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And my fellows in, in the environment movement have been particularly resistant to wanting to talk about population. They'll always mention the C word, consumption, but when it comes to human numbers and the impact of our numbers and the growth of our numbers, they go strangely silent. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think you're in a pretty unique position to uh, to offer some perspective about that, because before you took the helm of Population Matters, you did an interesting project for the organization. Would you care to share with us a little bit about that project that you did to gauge and perhaps even change the, the commitment of UK environment and conservation organizations to address this issue? Yeah, sure. It was back in 2012 when um, there's a rather august body here in the UK called the Royal Society, and it's a, a, a formal body of, of leading scientists from across the disciplines. And the Royal Society, much really to our surprise, those of us who, who cared about the population issue, produced this report called People and the Planet. And in that, they, they came up with, in simple terms, the statement that we needed to talk about both uh, population and consumption when we were considering the environment and it had been always a it had always been the sort of case and certainly in the UK that environmentalists and conservationists were very happy to talk about consumption and and really uh, and relate that as the key sort of cause of the of the woes facing our environment but weren't prepared to talk about population so it was really amazing to have that sort of body of scientists sort of break that taboo and bring those two together so Myself working with my former boss at Friends of the Earth, um, a guy called Jonathan Porritt, who's, who's a much more um, b better known environmentalist than I am. But he and I decided to work together to try and, and get the other NGOs, many of whom we'd sort of worked for and had colleagues in and knew people within over the years, to actually say, look, th this body of scientists is talking about it. Isn't it time you guys started talking about it? It seemed a great sort of springboard and platform. So indeed, we, we launched this initiative on the back of that report and contacted the chief execs of all the main um, conservation organizations here in the UK, some of which your listeners will be familiar with, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which is an international organization, Greenpeace, which is an international organization, Friends of the Earth, which is too, but much more sort of focused in, in Europe and the UK, although founded in the US, and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, blah de blah de blah a load of those those well-known public bodies that are meant to be, and are in many cases, doing great things for conservation and the environment. And it was really interesting, the reaction we had. So first of all, we just you know, sent them an email and sent them a letter politely and uh, were, you know, received <laughs> a deafening silence and no <laughs> response. Uh, and these are people, you know, these are people who are my colleagues. And, and in Jonathan's case, you know, he'd been there the director of their organizations or was on their advisory council or a trustee so it was quite telling that they just put up a sort of 
a sort of sound wall against us. And it was as if, you know, hands over ears uh, or over eyes, the classic sort of three monkeys, you know, see, speak, hear, no, no facts about population. So we thought we'd better sort of up the game a bit. So we then produced a series of pamphlets, if you like, where we wrote these documents from the perspective of those organizations, from the issues that they stated they were concerned about and worked on and said, look, if you were to take up the population issue, this is how it relates to your agenda. And being a little bit cheeky, we produced those just by a sort of local printing press, but we produced them with their logo on the front and and uh, with their name on it and say, well, here, you know, if you were to produce a leaflet for your members and your supporters about population, this is what it might look like. That really got a reaction. Yeah, you got their <laughs> attention. <laughs> well, it got their attention and it was meant to be a sort of positive provocation and, and it certainly provoked them. So from a couple of them, we got letters back which simply said, you've used our logo without our permission uh, you may see us in court. We will. We take this very seriously. We ask you to. With, so they would not talk about the issue. But then, and you thought, my God, you're threatening us with lawyers. You know, this is just extraordinary. Anyway, they sort of calmed down a bit. We said, okay, well, we won't use your logo. So we then produced the same leaflets, took that, stripped the logo off, and just put a picture of the planet on it instead. The famous, you know, NASA, NASA picture of the Earth from space. And they were a bit grumpy about that. Didn't like it. Um, but we said, look, you've got to, you, you know, you really need to talk about this, engage in dialogue with us. They still were very resistant. So then we went sort of slightly round the back door and approached their their local organisations, their you know associate offices and regional regional um, groups and and local groups as we call them here in the UK. And really interestingly, at that sort of grassroots level people were much more open and said, yeah, we would really like to talk about population. We would really like it that our organization started taking up this issue. It makes sense to us, and there's no reason we can see why you shouldn't talk about it. But at that sort of senior level, and I guess it would sort of fall into the same category as I am, you know, a white, middle-aged, middle-class male in the UK. That's where the sort of main band of directors or senior managers were in the majority of environmental conservation organizations in the UK. And there seemed to be a sort of collective, um, I don't know, sort of vestigial guilt or awkwardness or hesitation to want to talk about population at that level. And they just blanked it off and held to the old mantra that I'd been sort of taught when I started off at Friends of the Earth back in the early 1980s. You know, here in the UK, in the developed world, we're 20% of the world's population but we're responsible for 80% of the world's consumption, and therefore, it's only consumption that we concentrate upon. But of course, that equation has changed quite a lot over the past decade. So we really got that sort of pushback. But, oh, but once we started talking to their local groups then and their local sort of chapters, and uh, I think you might call them in the States, uh, we, we started to get a bit more engagement from them and a, and a sort of reluctant, begrudging, slight shift in their policy positions but it really was an interesting exercise and and sort of you know brought home the the challenges of organizations such as yourselves and us in shifting those amplifiers in society who really could reach so many people and and talk in a rational humane and compassionate way about population but there just seems to be that sort of psychological, cultural resistance. Now, I imagine, though, that the people you were speaking with at the local level were probably pretty similar demographic to the people who were running those organizations. Why do you think the agenda would be different? Yeah, that's a good one. I, 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 I'm not entirely sure, except that I think there is a sort of, there's a tendency of all of us as we find ourselves in positions of of responsibility or having a a sort of title and and uh, and some sort of status within an organisation that we can become a bit more conservative. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I started off as an environmentalist, it, you know, and I don't think we even had the term then. We were just a bunch of sort of radical semi, you know, hippie hippie greenies who were trying to challenge the system. You know, and anything anything went. You know, anything you could do was was a bonus. We sort of dropped uh, non-returnable bottles outside the headquarters of Schweppes. Um, we stuck banners up over the place. Uh, 
you know, we tie ourselves to things, etc., etc., etc. We do anything to try and get attention. But I think in some ways, as the movement has matured and as it's become a bit more mainstream, people have perhaps become... They've, they've, they've found themselves accepted in the corridors of power rather than being outside the doors shouting at people or, or holding up placards. And there is a slight tendency in all of us that we can become a bit more cautious and a bit more conservative. And the irony is, of course, that's not where the likes, or, you know, the founders of the organizations like uh, Friends of the Earth, Dave Brower and people who started off with the Sierra Club, I seem mm-hmm. to remember, and then yeah. got a bit hacked off with them. You know, but people were more radical, and certainly Greenpeace was pretty damn radical and would put itself in harm's way you know between the harpoons and the whales yes but i think we became a bit more mainstream and perhaps a bit more cautious so i think we need to you know given the state of the planet and what we know about what's happening in terms of climate change and species uh decline and and the the the, the real onset of the sixth mass extinction i think we've got to get radical again and start speaking the truth but at the same time uh, we have to work out how to communicate to people that they will listen and not just put their hands over their ears. Have you given up on getting overpopulation onto the agendas of these organizations? No, I haven't actually. And and it's, um, I suppose, over those four years since we had that first attempt um, at the at the NGOs, the big non-governmental organizations here in the UK, I think there's been a really interesting um, discernible shift that people are starting to, despite what I've just said, just become a bit less cautious about talking about population. We had a, I mean, I was really fortunate. I came into the job of director at Population Matters in sort of January 2017 and took up the reins, you know, with my colleagues and began to get more embedded in the issue. And then the first sort of big event that we sort of were involved in was around the marking of World Population Day in the sort of second week of July. So I think it was 11th of July in yeah. 2017. And we launched our our little campaign around trying to draw people's attention to the Anthropocene by producing this sculpture of a new human species called Bigfoot. Uh, he's he's made out of a matrix of, of steel babies. Sounds a little bit controversial, but, um, you know, there are 11 thousand or so more of us added to the planet every hour so that seemed quite a good way of of representing that and he's standing on a planet which is being squashed and he's looking down at one of his feet which has squidged a whole load of of biodiversity and he has oversized feet hence called bigfoot so we were trying to get that that across and we thought okay that's going to be let, let's try and sort of provoke some publicity out of this and we went outside the big um, London Natural History Museum, a very famous natural history museum, the equivalent of your sort of Smithsonian, I guess, and, uh, you know, talked to people and so forth. But what was really interesting, in that week, and we hadn't predicted this, and it wasn't really our initiative that caused it, but there were three articles run in the Guardian newspaper, which is the, the sort of main environmentally focused, tinged uh, mainstream newspaper in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that newspaper has to date been absolutely resistant to talking about population. There have been a number of, of their key correspondents, fantastic environment correspondents, but, but never wanting to talk about population and only want to talk about consumption. But in that week, we saw three articles, one of which was related to us, but the other one was covering the um, research done by various uh, scientists, but including Paul Ehrlich and others in, in the U.S., which basically said the sixth mass extinction is underway. Welcome to the Anthropocene. And that absolutely tied in with what we were doing. And then there was another piece of work done by Lund University in Sweden, which came out with the statistics which suggested that if you wanted to reduce your carbon budget, the most effective action you could take would be to have one less child. And that was sort of like between 25 to 50 times more effective than any other of your sort of eco-actions you might consider from flying less, getting rid of your car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, those all landed in that same week. And I thought, this something has shifted, that, that the guardian of all newspapers is prepared to publicize these and mainstream it. And we're on a podcast now. And it then led to the guardian saying, hey, we got such a reaction from our viewers. That sort of sleeping line of the grassroots people and their readers who actually really are concerned about this issue 
but who haven't sort of penetrated through the higher levels where there's been a resistance. And so I, I do think there are some some real changes, and I think it's this issue is beginning to, to get the coverage and interest that it so long has deserved. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, because that's that's my perception too. That I think this I've read this on your website that the population taboo is. I'm not sure what the word was you used, but it's beginning to erode. It's fading, dissolving. It, it, it yeah, it is. It is. But there's still resistance, and there's still. I mean, I think you know, as a, as a species, we are. You know, there's there's some absolutely. You know, we all have brilliant examples of how proactive human beings can be in terms of caring for each other and caring for the planet and it, it i i sort of grew up as a as a teenager in the in the early days of the sort of save the whale campaign and it always struck me how how it was possible to to stimulate empathy amongst people who had never seen a whale and were never likely to see a whale but could but could project their imagination out into those sort of Arctic waters and go, hang on a minute, this shouldn't be happening. We should not be killing these huge, wonderful mammals and just turning them into, you know, unnecessary and, and, and ridiculous products just because it's cheaper and easier for us, you know. So but I, things like that sort of really, really gave me, you know, hope. But at the same time, we're very good at denying stuff as well. So th th there's been a quite a good study by a, an academic here in, in the UK called um, Professor Diana Cool, who's at one of the L London universities. And she came up with this notion of, she calls them five silencing discourses about population. Hopefully I can remember them all. But the first one is about, so she calls population shaming. So that anybody who talks about population really must have roots in the old nasty and indeed Nazi sort of links to eugenics and and colonialism and really dark stuff about you know and being being xenophobic and anti-humanity. So there's a sort of nervousness about even talking about population because people will think you're one something like that, which I can promise you I'm not, and I know you're not, and I know yeah. that most of my colleagues that I've ever talked about population certainly aren't. But we've all been accused of that. I'm, I bet, I bet, and you know, it, it, it's it's an old stereotype that hangs on, which is very convenient to those who don't want to talk about it. And then there's a sort of scepticism, like, well, it's not really a problem, is it? I mean, isn't isn't population just going to stabilise at 10 billion? Isn't that what all the experts say? And it's sort of going to be okay, and that sort of enables people to, to to sort of push the problem off and think well, there's nothing really we can do about it, which of course is not true because the UN population projections are a range of projections from a low to a medium to a high, and none of those are sort of cast fatalistically. We could do things to reach the lower and avoid the higher. And it certainly would make things a lot easier if, if we achieve that. And then I think there are also ways of decomposing the argument, as Diana Cool calls it, in that rather than talking about human numbers and population numbers, you talk about um, the rights issue or you know, empowering uh, access to family planning, all of which is absolutely essential and important. But if you don't talk about the numbers, then you don't have to talk about the numbers and you don't have to talk about the big picture. You sort of break it down. So I'm sure you've, you've seen it, but it'd be worth your listeners just checking out Diana Cool's work on the, on the five silencing discourses because it really explains and it takes us back to your question around the NGOs because it, it really resonated for me as to why my otherwise highly intelligent, courageous, active colleagues in Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and elsewhere found it so difficult to talk about population because they were they were sort of rising in, in sort of awkward anxiety and agony about these these different sort of discourses they didn't want to be involved in and how they could excuse themselves from having to face some inconvenient truths and inconvenient facts. And I think one of the most powerful reasons why population has been so difficult to talk about it has been because we've had some brilliant presenters, if you like, on the other side, who sort of told people not to worry about it. So we've the likes of the late um, Hans Rosling, who's a fantastic presenter, but his great hope and holding on to the grand narrative of demographic transition theory that, no, every country will see their fertility rate falling 
And in the end, we will reach this stable population and countries will develop and progress and everything will be well in the world is, is an extremely attractive proposition and one we all want to believe in. Unfortunately, it isn't entirely true or universally uh, manifested. But people have held on to that and I think that's a sort of human instinct that we have to overcome, not, not to denigrate Rosling, because I think his instincts were good, but to show where the, where the flaws and failings were in that grand progressive narrative. And you know only too well in your own country that what was a hopeful sort of progressive narrative has been slightly, you know, hit a bump in the road of late. I'm sorry, I make no comment about your, your politics. It's <laughs> you hard to avoid. what I'm talking about. <laughs> hard yeah. to avoid these days. We've kind of backed into it, so I want to kind of circle back and start where people might have expected us to start, and that is with this organization that you've been the director of for about a year, Population yeah. Matters. People can explore your very impressive website at populationmatters.org. So let's talk just a little bit about the organization. What is your primary mission? Well, our primary mission has, has been to, to, to raise awareness about the population issue amongst the general public, policymakers, and the media, because I think that's still a real challenge for us. You know, it, it, it is something which people do not want to talk about. So there, there is still a campaign simply to get people to start talking about population. And it's also to show that it's possible to take positive actions to achieve a smaller population than, than, than some people fatalistically project. And that achieving that is not by coercive, controlling, sort of one-child policy such as China, but actually about simple, positive choices that each of us individually can take and make. And we have the power to take and make, but there are still a lot of our people in the world, particularly women in the world, who have an unmet need and an inability to access the family planning that, that they wish so they can take control of their own fertility and choose how many children they have. So there are some really positive things we can do to achieve a more uh, sustainable population, which will make every other environmental issue that we face in the world easier to contend with. So we're trying to raise those, you know, promote that awareness and those positive solutions and that optimism that's something we can we can do about and i think more importantly to overcome the old stereotypes and show that the work we're doing that you're doing and, and i'm trying to do here and my my team and, and supporters trying to do is a really pro-human agenda it's not an anti-human you know I'm, I'm not i love human beings you know i'm married i have a have a daughter i love to bits i wouldn't be without so it's not about being sort of you know, some sort of, in a very negative miscasting, we're not sort of miserable Malthusians walking around with a placard over our shoulder saying the end of the world is nigh. We're seeking to achieve and sustain this planet in a way that provides the, the beauty, the biodiversity and the opportunity for our children, our children's children, and not actually head in a direction which will really foreclose on so many of those options if we are are not alert to them. Well, that seems all seems so obvious to me, but as you know, it's work to kind of cut through those misconceptions out there to to get that point across. It certainly is. Is your work focused on doing this just in the UK, or do you see yourselves as a, a, a global organization? We want to be more global, and so it's great to be talking to, to you. And and particularly, we started off in the UK, so we so we have a sort of if you like, a sort of base and a, and a foothold in the UK. But our supporter base is, is more international. And thank goodness for the, for the internet and, and the web and so forth, because that, that really enables us to, to reach out beyond the, these little narrow shores. But I think we certainly have a job to do to, to show that, that, and I think particularly in terms of some of those uh, false stereotypes that, that apply to anybody who talks about population, we're not pointing our finger at other people and saying, you must do this. We're pointing the finger at ourselves here in, in a developed country which has a unsustainable population as it is. Here in the UK, we, we account for, you know, in terms of our consumption rates, about 2.9 to 3 Earth's worth of resources each year. So, so we are clearly over-consuming and taking our unfair share of the Earth's resources. So we have to, we have to sort of look at our own 
uh, you know, domestic situation. But it is absolutely essential for us to have contacts and links and friends in in countries all around the world, and particularly in countries which are currently facing very challenging growth rates and, and population pressure pressures such as Africa and India and, and parts of the Middle East. So we have partnerships uh, with organizations in Africa where we are supporting um, family planning uh, projects, which are also linked to conservation projects. And this is something which is you know, requested, required and asked for by the indigenous populations on the ground. It's not something we're imposing. So we really want to, to operate internationally as well as, as, as having that sort of national original base. Well, you touched on this uh, excellently, and that is this idea that, uh, well, certainly there are a lot of population NGOs around the world. And I think it's probably fair to say that most of them really are focusing their efforts in areas of high fertility, which would not be the United States, Canada, Australia, the UK, most of Europe, uh, or all of Europe, really, um, but places like Sub-Saharan Africa. And so a lot of people tend to assume, well, that's where we need to be doing the work to solve overpopulation. So you're one of a, a handful like World Population Balance here in the United States who are not doing what you said you're not doing. We're not saying you do this, but you're saying let's do this. Maybe you can explain for somebody who might be kind of new to this thinking, well, why why are we talking to people in the United Kingdom and North America about overpopulation? What is there to be done? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, particularly because I think that's where the consumption equation is still, you know, absolutely relevant, you know, so... Yeah. Although, as countries rightly develop their and their affluence increases, so they become consumers equivalent to those of us in in the UK or the US who are pretty high level consumers. Even when we're trying to be green and reduce our impacts, you know. So the it, it's certainly not true to say that all consumers are sort of based in just the US and the UK, even if we if we're pretty good at it. But you know, there's a massive increase of consumers in India and China and I th- you know I think the latest figures are we're sort of set to rise from 3.2 billion sort of high level consumers globally to 5 billion over the next sort of 30 40 years and most of those will be in India and and, and Africa particularly yeah. so uh, w- there's that old argument of contraction and convergence we need to contract our consumption rates in in the developed world and enable others in countries which have had far less um access or recourse to resources to increase their consumption and balance that out. Now, that's a hell of a challenge, but we have to communicate that to to our sort of home base here because we, we know that, you know, currently a consumer in the UK, in terms of his or her uh, climate change, gas emissions and general sort of resource use is, you know, several tenfolds more demanding on the Earth's resources than somebody, you know, born in Ethiopia or Indonesia or wherever else, you know, of, of those developing countries. So, so we know from excellent organisations such as Global Footprint Network, we can see different countries and different continents' current per capita resource use and consumption. But there is also the the tragedy associated with some developing countries where their populations are burgeoning at such a rate that even though their individual demands on the earth, so what people call their their sort of global footprints, are quite modest, if not tiny, compared to some in the US or UK, as a collective population, because there's such a large number of people and such a growing number of people, their overall footprint may be very big indeed. So, I mean, Africa, I think individually their footprint has gone down per capita over the past 30 years but as a continent it's tripled because the population growth is so high so we both have to look at how we work with individuals and organizations in the countries with very high birth rates high fertility rates currently to to help them manage their populations and not go down the same route as us as being high rate consumers but also look at our own backyards and try and persuade people to consume less and so contract and allow that convergence to happen. But that is a tremendous challenge, which I, which I don't underestimate. 
Now, I, I want to give you a full and due credit for uh, including reducing consumption in what I call the overdeveloped world. You're, you're referring to it as the developed world, kindly. Yeah. kindly. Yes, better way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Better um, way of putting it. Uh, so you include that in your messaging, but do you think your many of your counterparts at Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, for example, might be tempted to believe that in a in an overdeveloped nation where the fertility rate is near replacement level or perhaps even a little below replacement level, that the population problem in that country is solved and all there is left to work on is overconsumption. I'm I'm sure they do want to believe that and that's the that's that would be the convenient get out from dealing with the inconvenient fact that we are already overpopulated in those overdeveloped and overdemanding countries. So in the UK, I mean, there's some, there's some you know, powerful statistics. You know, we, we have something like 65 plus million people presently in the UK, and we're set to, that's set to grow to about 70 million by the sort of middle of this century. Um, we are already stressing our ecosystems here. So one of the facts people don't realize, and, and we, we tend to think of the UK as a green and pleasant land and, you know, lots of lovely woodlands and, and countryside, and we've got organizations like the National Trust looking after our countryside and some of our heritage areas and so forth. But we are also one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world, which is a shocking statistic for a developed country such as ours, who... And with no disrespect to to my American colleagues and and, and friends, but you know, this was one of the birthplaces of of. Uh, I'll, I'll rephrase that because there are people like Rachel Carson who are the absolute sort of inspirers of of the modern environment movement. In terms of the old conservation movement, the UK was a was a good sort of birthplace for a lot of those organisations, and yet we have just seen our wildlife declining year in, year out. So we are not a success story in any way. And we have this terrible thing in the UK, which you'll be familiar with, of sort of shifting baseline syndrome. So we do the, sort of, the statistics, say, oh, you know, these populations of these butterflies or these birds have declined, you know, gone down over the past 10 years. So, but look at it over the past 50, 100 years. You know, it, the populations have halved. There is more wildlife in many parts of urban Britain than there is in the wider countryside because of intensive farming methods. Now, there are some great farmers and there are some great alternative methods which are, which are beginning to reverse that. But overall, we are under a hell of a lot of pressure. And if you wanted to feed uh, the UK from our own resources, you certainly couldn't feed the current population. You know, we, we import sort of about two-thirds of our food from overseas. And in particular, which is the sort of the hidden cost, the intensive livestock we raise, so pigs and poultry, are entirely dependent on animal feed from overseas, and um, many of them from countries which are struggling to feed their own population. So we are feeding pigs and, and uh, chickens and the rest of it with um, produce crops that are grown on land which should properly be growing food for human beings or should be under biodiverse areas which shouldn't have been cleared for agriculture in the first place. So we're certainly not a sustainable nation. And there was a great um, study looking at Greater London, which calculated, and this was done by one of the um, early, sort of more progressive London authorities, and it calculated that to feed the population of London it's on its own, and it's a slightly, it's a slightly sort of odd equation, but they basically calculated that it would take more than the entire available agricultural area of the UK. Now, of course, we're importing, you know, wine from France and Italy and Australia and great wine from the States as well. And so all sorts of things are coming in by trade. But if you look at it in sort of cold terms of what this country could sustain from its own resources, we are way above the sustainability levels. And we are surprisingly water-stressed. Anybody of your listeners who've been to the UK, you probably think it rains the whole time. And it does rain quite a lot in the southwest where I live. But in the southeast, uh, which is the most developed part of the UK, the southeast of England, I think it's been calculated that it's one of the most water-stressed regions in the world. It's something like 161st most water-stressed regions out of about 185. So we have less rainfall around London 
than you do in the Sudan. So we are slightly deluding ourselves that we can sustain ourselves under the pressures that are coming to bear and are also coming to bear on the countries upon which we have relied for our imports of food and other resources. Is it fair to say that uh, even with heroic uh, efforts to reduce consumption levels, if you keep your population at 65 million or even let it grow to 70 million, there's no, there's no way you can get to that sustainable equilibrium? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think we said at the outset before we sort of, you know, came, came sort of live on the podcast, you know, that we both try and retain optimism. And particularly, I've got a young daughter, so I, I most certainly want to retain optimism. And, some, and I wonder if I'm just deluding myself. But I really hope that I'm, that I'm wrong on some of the figures that I see and interpret. And, and I hope that, although I rather doubt it, that many of the research papers and the work of you know eminent scientists from around the world may may not be quite as dire as they appear and i really hope that in that sort of old equation that we sort of population types quote which paul ehrlich came came up with of you know the impact on the earth is a result of the the factors of population numbers times affluence stroke consumption times technology i really hope that some of those other factors of technology or affluence, so reducing consumption, may come to bear in such a way that that it, it means that you know the the impact of population may not be so great, or maybe we will manage to persuade people, and I and I really think we can, to have smaller families. So then the factor of population is less impacting, and therefore the overall equation is there's more wriggle room given for technology, or more wriggle room for reducing consumption, but. It's a very, very close-run game at the moment, and, and I guess you'll be familiar with the study that came out from um, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, last year, which was looking at this notion of uh, you know, techno-optimism and is technology going to, en to enable us to uh, use resources more efficiently, and, and surely we're heading for this sort of weightless world where we're using less and less stuff. And MIT looked at 57 of the most sort of common resources or services which fuel the modern society in, in, in a developed country. And of those 57 resources, they didn't really find any which had gone down in use apart from uh, government-regulated uh, materials such as asbestos or toxic chemicals, pesticides, radioactive uh, isotopes. And in one sort of rather shocking case, wool from sheep, you know, probably the most sustainable product you could have, renewable product, but substituted by um, synthetic, you know, man-made fibers. So this notion that technology is really there and, going, you know, we're going to be okay, you know, Elon Musk or somebody else is going to come up with this wonder machine solution, battery, whatever else, and we won't have to worry about population, isn't really borne out by the facts, but I still hope that there are things, you know, where there is there is optimism. You know, we've seen an incredible resurgence in renewable technology and the, and the uptake of solar. So there are positive trends, but it's it's tight. The the equation is tight to get right. Well, my editorial comment would be, in my view, uh, the safest and prudent, most prudent path would be to. Uh, to also work very hard on the the population part of that equation. Just, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because if you take up P, everything else gets harder. And you know that's what the great David Attenborough says. He's one of our patrons, our sort of main patron, really. He says, you know, I can't think of any environmental issue which wouldn't be easier to contend with with fewer people, or harder to contend with with more people. And it's it's a simple statement, and thank goodness somebody like him who uh, rises above all the debate which seems to tangle up some of our friends in the NGOs, but he can say those things, and people go, yeah, makes sense to me. And so, so people do cut through that, and I think you're absolutely right. If you take out the P factor, everything else becomes much harder. There's less wriggle room. Yeah, it's great that you have some very outstanding spokespeople helping you with that. 
you're providing some very interesting references to some studies, and I just want to mention that we will endeavor to include links to every study you mention in the show notes so that our listeners can can go and explore these because you're sharing some really, really great resources there. And check whether what I'm saying actually is true. <laughs> so that's good. You know, thank yeah. you. We've yeah. got to verify it. You know, we can all talk away. So in addition to... Uh, trying to raise awareness and to inspire some people to voluntarily choose to have smaller families. Uh, you also are advocating the adoption of a national population policy for the United Kingdom, are you not? We are. And, and I think that's, I mean, we're starting in the United Kingdom, but I think that's something that every, every in any country should have. And it's, it's actually interesting looking back historically, because in the past, um, various UK policymakers and politicians have talked about the wisdom of having a population policy, but it's it sort of fallen off the agenda more more recently. But we should quickly say what it's what it's not, shouldn't we? <laughs> you know, a lot of people when they when you say population policy might think China one child policy. Oh quite, exactly, exactly. You know, you'll see it on, on our website. We don't have any or hold any any sort of uh any account for coercive, controlling, you know, population policies. We simply think it's it's a factor that needs to to be considered. And and the, particularly in the UK, I don't know I don't know what it's like in the states, but um, we have to rely on and, and we want, you know we need to rely on data from reliable sources. So we're all very dependent on the. Uh, UN uh, population division uh, stats that come out and, and you know, all those, those the regular reports of, of where their estimates of where world population is going. But here in the UK, we have a really good small public body called the Office of National Statistics, and they crunch the numbers on the data around a whole range of issues and policies which, which government is, is seeking to work on. But it includes the, the, the population statistics. But at the moment... The, the, the Office of National Statistics, or ONS as, as it's known, just puts out this, this data each year which sort of says where they think the current population levels are and what the fertility rate is and where we may be going in the next sort of uh, 10, 20, 30 years. They actually do 100-year projections as well, but they don't publicize those so, so much. Um, but that data just sort of goes out into the public domain without anybody really doing anything with it as far as we can work out. There's no government department which has responsibility for it. There's no minister or he or she who considers these uh, figures and starts thinking, well, what does this mean for the UK in terms of the various public matters that we're seeking to manage? So one of the big issues in the UK at the moment, there are two big issues, there's housing so there's, there's a lack of, of affordable housing, particularly for, for young people. And that re, there's various things which impact upon that, such as the various policy things around social and public housing between various governments in the past. The Conservatives would have been against it for a time. The Labour would have been pro it and, you know, variations on that. That is a factor. But there is also the factor of the, the rising population in the UK, which has increased quite dramatically over over recent decades. And the other great issue is our health um, service, which the, the National Health Service, which is it's one of the great, great sort of uh, treasured things in, in the UK. It, it was actually sort of focused on at the Olympics here, here in London. It was, so there was a great sort of theatrical opening about it, to, one of the things to celebrate about the UK. But it's it's very it's very stretched, uh, partly because people are living longer, and so there's a, there's an aging population coming into hospitals. But it's always like we need more money in the NHS, need more money. But nobody ever says, hmm. So we we've, we've actually got more people, and so all of these things, whether it's housing, or public health, or education, schools, etc. etc. The factor of population is absolutely critical to that. And surely we should be planning about this. Surely we should be talking about this. Rather than, you know, we're doing a sort of, I don't know, what do you call it? It's like a sort of Red Queen type game where you're sort of running to catch up the whole time, like a, you know, like the, the white rabbit running around in Alice in Wonderland. Keep putting more money in it or see if we can, you know, stretch the resource a bit or make the doctors work hard. It's not like 
can we constantly keep going? You know, it is the old economic growth factor. You know, gro only growth is good, you know, and, and therefore, oh, we'll have to somehow keep coming up with the money, which means taking it away from somewhere else. Oh, we'll have to keep building houses. But we, we need a policy which just looks at this country as a whole and goes, how can we sustain ourselves in a civil and civilized society, meeting the cultural and educational and health needs and well-being needs of the people without it bankrupting us? And we have to make some you know, tough decisions and we have to think about communicating what is a, a viable family size. I mean, I suppose one of the norms we'd like to achieve at Population Matters is that having one or two kids is fantastic and is something we can we can really enjoy and we can really manage in our in our world and in our in our country but having four or five kids in a big four by four is perhaps not the sort of cultural norm we wish to encourage you know we need people to start changing their their sort of mindset so just as it's now here in the UK nobody would think of not recycling whereas it was regarded as complete hippie nonsense you know 30 years ago when I started it's a cultural norm yeah actually two kids is, is cool you know and we're, we're not anti-children we're not we're not coercing people but we want to sort of nudge people in the direction of thinking what is a sustainable human family size given everything else this world can produce and provide for us but also for other species upon which we are ultimately dependent it's not just nice to have you know what ants or termites do dis in a distant forest or savanna has an impact upon the climate and upon the diversity of ecosystems and the health of ecosystems upon which we ultimately depend we're not immured in a merely sort of urban uh, synthetic existence we we absolutely depend on nature i mean i know i'm sort of revealing my rather sort of uh, ecological uh, roots but um I'm a, I'm a great sort of fan of the likes of of E.O. Wilson and others who you know show that, that that we as a species are very much a biological species within the living organism of the earth. We're not something separate from it. Wow. Sorry, I, I had too much coffee today. Probably. I'm loving it, and I, and I was just thrilled to discover you had such a, a deep background in all this. I think uh, you're a real win for Population Matters. Uh, I want to give you a chance to spotlight some of the great uh, tactics that Population Matters is using to, to do some of this work. And I think one of them that I was particularly impressed with was your new Small Families, Small Planet video. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, it's very nice you to say we've got great tactics. I, I don't think we have. I don't think I have anything like as, uh, as great tactics as we need. And I think your background is, is filmmaking communications. And, and personally, I believe that 75% of our job is communications. And the, the facts all exist. They're all there. The data's there. But we know that um, many people just won't listen to data or facts, however much you present them with it or shout it at them, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that's successful campaigning. I've, you know, I wrote many a report when I was at Friends of the Earth, and they just sort of gathered dust in the basement. You know, and if if reports and research worked, none of us would need to be in this job. So, communication is is absolutely crucial, and it's working out how you can work with people, you know, rather than confronting people. I think they'll just close off. So, so we made a small. It's, it's just one little film, but it's um, it's it's a it's a video which we wanted to sort of promote the idea of of smaller families and you know I'm a I'm a sort of a middle-aged old man so I'm not a target audience I'm sort of you know I've made my choices if you like the, the, the people I really have hope for and I want to communicate to uh, without disregarding old guys like me but are the, are the young people because they're the future and they're the ones who who are really going to make choices about how they lead their lives and they also have that incredible power over how many children they or they don't have so we really wanted to talk to young young people, and so we we uh, made this video where we got a, a representative group of, of of young folk in, and and just put some of the the facts about population and the impacts on the planet currently to them, um, without any sort of judgment, and got them to react to them. What do you think would happen if families across the world are bigger by just half a child on average? one more baby for every second family. 
It will surely plateau off. It can't just keep going up. Heck, it's just getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Oh man, that's that's nuts. Oh my god. Yeah, that is a scary thought. So what about the other way? If average family size across the world was just half a child less? Yeah. So if everyone had half a child less, yeah, that would have a, that would have a huge effect, and that would solve the increased population that could help bring resources. It's crazy that just half a child makes that big a difference. And it was really interesting how how they did react and how they wanted to make a difference and were you know didn't feel threatened or or um, negatively challenged, but just like great, thank you for letting us see this and understand this we didn't know that right you know there's something we can do about it so we have to sort of go where that where there are opportunities i think and so that that was the um intention of the of the small families video and our, our, our sort of intentions there and I, again it was a bit of an inspiration from our patron david attenborough who said you know that actually he's really heartened and he's sort of nine, you know, turned 90 this year but he's heartened by the number of letters he gets from young people who really want to do stuff and so in terms of us being a sort of pro-people organisation, I really have faith in the younger generation being that much ahead of us of realising what's going on and being capable of making a difference. And, you know, we're seeing the sort of darkest hour before the dawn at the moment with the sort of the old neoliberal growth economy and, you know, the Putins and the Trumps and the rest of them who are harking back to an era which is dying out like the dinosaurs. And I think, I really have hope that there's a new generation coming in which is going to transform things. And I've, and I've seen that when we've been to sort of student events and, and uh, freshers' fairs at universities or, and, uh, you know, groups like the sort of Vegan Society, which has grown tremendously here in the UK. And the young people get it and they say, yeah, we want to do something about this. I could go down so many different uh, avenues of discussion with you, and I'm trying to discipline myself since we're really uh, approaching the hour mark already. We may have to do a part two or something like that sometime, perhaps, if you're open to that. Yeah, well, thank you, Dave. No, I'm sorry, I've witted on it. I mean, there's, there's one more thing I would say is that, um, and I think it's really key to our, to our work, is um, and it's around the optimism. But I, I want to have fun in the job I do. I don't want to be miserable and depressed and, you know, just and bear, being the bearer of ill tidings to people, even if that's pretty challenging, you know, given <laughs> quite a lot of ill tidings around. But as a campaigner, I've always wanted to, you know, have a sense of mischief and fun. And I think that can really help in our work, you know, that because you then can, can get the unexpected and, you, and people don't sort of tie you or label you with the stereotypes. And that's what we've tried to do with Bigfoot, this sculpture that we've been taking around. You know, he's... He's potentially quite a depressing figure because he's, he's a steel sculpture made out of all these little blanks of babies and he's squishing the earth. But people like him and they come and talk with him and the kids all sort of look at all the little creatures he's squashed underfoot and ask questions. And I think we've just got to work out how to engage people in a way that, that isn't threatening and isn't always doom-laden whilst not overly sugaring the pill. And that's a really difficult dance to follow but um i'd love to hear more about your work so so we we should definitely do this the other way around at some point yeah that would be interesting wouldn't it are you seeing some successes with the other ngos as a result of this bigfoot campaign um i think we're seeing some interest i mean we particularly um focused um him on the the big institutions in the UK. So places like the Natural History Museum or London Zoo or the Eden Project, the places which where there's a big footfall of people who are interested in the natural world. And these organizations are very, very successful communicators, you know, far better than I am. They, they attract, you know, millions of visitors each year. So our focus is these are the amplifiers of our message. If we can get them to start talking about our issue, then we're going to reach far more people far more successfully. And the Natural History Museum has a wonderful um, evolutionary sort of exhibition of the, of the development of, of the modern world and of human beings and the state of the planet. But it sort of it pulls its punches when it comes to the end. It doesn't really talk about 
what the impact of Homo sapiens is now, and it doesn't really talk about the Anthropocene. Whereas, actually, to your credit, the Smithsonian is is streets ahead of the Natural History Museum presently, and one of the big German magazine, uh, one of the German museums is also. So, we're trying to persuade those big institutions to take our message, and if and, and that's where we're focused. If, and if we can see shifts there, then I then I think our campaign will be a success. But it's a bit early days. And we'll probably take it to the BBC as well, because despite the wonderful um, wildlife programmes, the Blue Planet and all the rest of them, the BBC is very cautious. Despite David Attenborough getting his pennies worth in, they really limit him to quite a short space of him giving the, the hard facts about what's happening to our planet and our potential role in resolving that and our current role in, in causing it. I suppose a big part of your job at Population Matters and our job at World Population Balance is to provide cover, to shift the uh, the dialogue and the public awareness uh, far enough that it's not seen as so risky for the BBC yeah. or The Guardian or these other institutions to, to start telling the full truth about population. I think that's a really good point. In a way, it's a sort of invidious job in that I think in some ways people will say, oh, well, we're not world population balance, or we're not population matters, but we do think this. So we may exactly that be giving cover and legitimacy and allowing space for others to say things which, if it came from us, people may not want to listen. I mean, I, I think that's changing. And, and I'm certainly, I don't want to hide away and, and uh, you know, be ashamed of what I do at all. Right. Um, but I think we, it is our job to give space, to create the space for ourselves, but also for others to come out and say the things that actually they will say to you in private, but they won't necessarily say to you publicly at the moment. Sure. We're a little bit on the cutting edge, and that way we can keep moving the, the cutting edge so that uh, everyone else can kind of be sucked into the vacuum right behind us. Let's hope. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? I, I think it's just all the time. Is, is I worked for... Um, Anita Roddick, the um, the founder of the Body Shop, um, for a time, ah. and uh, she was she was a great force. And, and I went on various trips with her to Central America, to, where they were doing fair trade with with um, farmers in Nicaragua and and, and elsewhere, to, you know, supporting their cooperatives, but but using their produce and, and and getting the messages across back here here in the UK and Europe. And one of the things she always talked about was taking it personally. And I sometimes I used to not be too sure about that, but I think it is. As campaigners, we have to make sure that we're not overly emotional and that we are rational. But I think if you're always true to your gut instincts and your personal view of the world, that really comes across in the work we do. And, you know, we're not seeking to do anything really in our job for making money, <laughs> I suspect, Dave. I don't know how much <laughs> your, your salary is, but um, we're not sort of in the Bill Gates League, that's for sure. But as long as you feel personally fulfilled and you're, you're letting your character come out, then I think you can, you stay authentic and you stay, you stay sort of rooted in what it was that motivated you to start off on this campaigning trail. And I've always remembered one of my, my great sort of mentors who sadly, he, he died in a rainforest in Madagascar trying to fight rear into zinc, turning a forest into toothpaste whitener. Um, but he always said to me, Robin, you know, campaigning is like a ratchet. If you move somebody forward, one cog on the ratchet, they can't go back. They can only go forward. But you won't get them to go around the whole ratchet. But, you know, one step forward, and that's a success. And, you know, just just hold on to that. So I've, that, that's how I've sort of tried to guide my career, such as it is. Well said. Well, thank you. I've been talking with Robin Maynard director of the UK organization Population Matters, actually a global organization doing good work. That's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Please visit worldpopulationbalance.org to learn more about how we can solve world overpopulation. Look in the show notes for this particular episode for links to uh, Population Matters and the studies that Robin mentioned during the course of this conversation. Also at our website, you can sign the Sustainable Population Pledge, listen to all our podcasts, get on our email list, and even make a donation to support our work. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Dave Gardner, reminding you that overpopulation is solvable. 
And I'll leave you with the closing moment from Population Matters' Small Families, Small Planet video. Not having children means that we're not personally contributing. We're taking some of the pressure off. It's made it very apparent to me the extremity of those things that I wasn't aware of. Facts and figures are very powerful. So I think it's made me want to sort of make other people aware as well. People around me, not sort of saying don't have children, but as in just sort of saying you need to be aware that the impact that you start your family and the amount of children you have has on everyone else. Educating or raising awareness of what the impact a large family has is a much better way to do it because then people will make that choice in a positive manner rather than being restricted. I feel that everybody is powerful and everybody has the opportunity in their lifetime to change something and to make a difference.